Sorry, here we are. Hello, everyone <laughs> watching and listening. Good afternoon from Switzerland and welcome back to the Free Radical podcast, episode number 13 this time. And this is your host, Swami Padmanabham, here today in the company of a dear new friend and spiritual uh, revivalist, I will say, and restorer, <laughs> Brian McLaren. So, Brian, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. I'm so, so honored to uh, be here with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so I'll read a few words regarding Brian's bio to share with you before we start our conversation. So it says like this. Brian D. McLaren is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian, a former college English teacher and pastor. He's a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity, just, generous, and working with people of all faiths for the common good. He is a core faculty member of the Living School and podcaster with Learning How to See, which are part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. He's also an Auburn Senior Fellow and is a co-host of Southern Lights. His newest books are Faith After Doubt, Do I Stay Christian, and Life After Doom. So before I forget, for those who would like to get to know more about Brian, I would like to share a reference that I will share at the end as well. There's his website, it's brianmclaren.net. So before starting a few personal words on how I got to meet with Brian myself, uh, I will say that I came to know about Brian as it happened with other remarkable new friends and guests that I invited recently to my podcast through our dear father, Richard Rort, who referred to Brian McLaren's work in his own books. Uh, and that's how I came to know about him, especially for his book, Do I Stay Christian?, which basically came to my life uh, last year during, I will say, the most unexpected and awkward chapter of my life, <laughs> where I, as many, some of you may know, I was basically shunned and ostracized from my previous community for daring to speak the truth and stick to my principles, basically. And then I, after all that happened, I ended up wondering how after such a chapter, my, my own tradition can remain relatable and relevant to me. How do I can continue to, as a Gaudiya Vaishnava in, in, in my own terms. Uh, so at that time, Brian's book came, I read it. I basically, technically speaking, devoured it. And it not only inspired me tremendously, but to address and understand my own situation and that of my larger community. But it also inspired me a lot to give shape to my own recent book, my last book on radical personalism, which was not in my plan to write, but by the force of circumstance that came out. Mm -hmm. out. Brian was somehow instrumental in that, although he didn't know at that point about it. Mm -hmm. So I want to, first of all, publicly thank uh, you, Brian, for all all of that that you have helped in my own life, whether you knew it or not, that you know it. <laughs> so thank you so much, deep gratitude. I want to make that clear and public. Uh, and also then in time, I, I heard some of your episodes, Brian, of the Learning How to See, the podcast, which is very, very beautiful, very recommended. And the rest is history, as they say, and here we are today with him. He very kindly uh, accepted my invitation. So again, thank you, Brian, for coming. and. 
Since this free radical podcast considerably revolves around the contents of my recent book, Radical Personalism, I always love, Brian, to invite my guests in each episode, just asking a few words about what's radical personalism means to you, whatever mm. you term. Oh, my goodness. Well, Swami, first, let me say how honored I am to be here and to make a confession. Um, I uh, Everything I know about uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, I, I, I learned from you so <laughs> and, from, and from your book. So I'm a, I'm a beginner in understanding the, the history and richness of your tradition, and I'm grateful to you for uh, teaching me uh, everything I know on on this subject, um, uh, you know, and I was interested in learning about the history of your tradition and of your struggles and challenges uh, in, in recent years, because of course we all are born into something, and or or we join something, and we we don't have a choice in the history of that thing we join. In fact, very often we don't know about it for many, many years. Uh, and probably that's why we join it. <laughs> that's probably right. And, but the good news is that we all do have a choice in what we become. And uh, there are moments when to, to maintain our integrity, the tradition that we love that very often has enriched our lives, brought deep meaning to our lives, we find ourselves in a position where we have to speak to that tradition. And, uh, and sometimes people uh, find what we say to be difficult. You and I share this in, a, in our struggle. Um, and I was so intrigued to, to learn a little bit more just in larger uh, Hindu history of the, the debates about personalism. Mm -hmm. and maybe I could just say one other thing and then uh, uh, we could take it from there. But, mm -hmm. you know, one of my feelings uh, from studying my, the history of the Christian faith and then learning about other faiths as well is, and this is true outside of religion, it's, it's true in different disciplines, political systems and so on. Very often people try to solve one problem with mm -hmm. a solution that then becomes a new problem <laughs> that then requires new solutions. And, it, yeah. and when we accept that, I think it helps us uh, live more generously and freely because we understand every new solution creates new problems. So all that's to say, hmm. understanding, I, I, I have an understanding from my rudimentary knowledge of Buddhism, why people chose impersonalism. Mm -hmm. Because it solves certain problems, but mm. then it creates other problems. Mm. And, and so the, the need to keep this balance that I felt so much in your book and that I think has been a struggle in opposite ways in the Christian faith, um, this balance between the personal and the impersonal or, uh, or, and, and the ultimate, the, 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 um, the ability to resist having the personal to be wiped away by the impersonal. Uh, mm. This is a struggle that human beings are facing in religious traditions and in our uh, global civilization as a whole. Hmm. Thank you for sharing, Brian. I really appreciated your point and on how, I would say how progress takes place, as you mentioned, on some level of 
a solution and that solution eventually becoming a problem and 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 how important it is to how to say to normalize how progress takes place which is in yeah. those sequences because if we don't understand that's act actually that's progress we may feel we are going backwards or something we are we may be looking for a solution that is equally applicable for eternity <laughs> yes. uh, and, and that's that's the greatest problem actually <laughs> looking so. looking for such a big solution so to say creates the, the biggest problem so I, I i really like your not only what you are saying now but the tone of your presentation as i found in your book on on do i stay christian and how to accept with more normalcy the, the rhythm of life the way things are happening and how how actual progress takes play in this sequence of no, solution problem solution problem yeah. and not and not seeing that as a problem so to say uh so so that to begin with and also in connection to your question of personalism impersonalism i don't know how far you have gone through my book but of course i try to make it i think it's clear for almost from the beginning that my the tradition i belong to is personalist or sometimes i will say radically personalist yeah. of course when I say radically personalist, that can have its pros and cons because also our tradition acknowledges the the existence of an impersonal uh, feature to the absolute because yeah. the, for the absolute to be absolute and unlimited, it includes both and yes. an, an imperfect integration. So now in, in our particular tradition, as in other traditions, as you had mentioned, uh, Sometimes impersonalism is chosen as a way to get rid of the problems of personhood or whatever. Uh, I will say in, in our tradition, we can find other types of problems in the other direction. We can yes, over yes. overemphasize uh, personalism and the specificity of that, which we are totally okay with, but sometimes to the point of condemning whatever doesn't fit into our ultra detailed specified personalistic doctrine and of course that creates its own waves of uh, fundamentalism and yes, narrow mindedness yes. and and this sense of elitism now that we belong to the most mm -hmm. hyper personalized detailed doctrine and whatever doesn't fit into that is n at least inferior not to say uh, what to say condemned or deviated so <laughs> So yeah, while I like to talk about radical personalism, I'm also trying to be careful about where that combination of words, radical personalism, can express itself in a radical personalist way, but radical in a more negative sense. No, so mm -hmm. so of course that's that's not the idea. No. Well, I felt that uh, you know it's like an artistic skill. Uh, it, it's like we could imagine a dancer who's very clumsy versus one who's very graceful. Mm -hmm. And there's, a, a, there is, and this is something that a lot of people I think don't understand about religious discourse in general. People uh, think that understandings and doctrines can be reduced to words and books. And of course, for you and I as authors, we value words and books, but mm -hmm. there is this graciousness of, of, of spirit. And I, I want to use the word style, not in a superficial sense, but in a very deep sense mm. um, of how we hold our doctrines. It has to do with qualities of the heart, like humility and generosity and, uh, and having a long view as opposed to only a, a, a short view of history. Mm. Um, and, and I, I think part of this 
flows from a, a kind of personalism that is aware that we're dealing with human beings. We're always dealing, we're dealing with sentient beings who have dignity and their personhood is sacred. Otherwise, even I could imagine, I don't know this is true, but based on the way uh, I've understood what you've experienced in recent years, in defending ideas of personalism, we could treat another human being as less than a person. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's yeah, humbling, I, I, isn't it? It's yeah, humbling. Totally. I, I make the point in my book, actually, one of the, I wouldn't say the main impetus or trigger, but one of the main uh, inspirations. Maybe, maybe negative impetus that took me to write the book in terms of radical personalism was to see how much depersonalization was playing it out in the name of personalism, ah, which is, yes, is so yes, tricky yes. because, again, some traditions may be officially, outwardly impersonal, but ours is uh, officially personal, radically personal, but sometimes, as you say, in the way we treat each other, we can be inhuman, impersonal, yeah. depersonal, so, so that's such a, a dangerous combination, I will say, you know, because mm. it, the packaging sells itself as a certain product, so to say, but you open the packaging and, <laughs> and something else is coming, no? And, and let me just say, you know, for me, coming from a Christian background, the irony in, in Christianity is that you can be so unchristlike. <laughs> in your defense or promotion of Christian values. And this has happened so many times. Uh, yeah. And of course it evoked uh, uh, Gandhi's famous saying uh, to some Christians, I like your Christ, but yeah, your Christians aren't so much like <laughs> Christ uh -huh. very often. And this is, this is where in our religious traditions, when we develop pride, as you said before, in the superiority of our articulations, we, um, we're always going to then uh, betray the spirit of of our the best of our tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I will say that the best of our tradition coming to us means a gift we have received, and it's a gift we have received without deserving it. It's unconditional yes. grace, and and the very nature of unconditional love is humbling. I mean, we can never yes. like demand any merit or my, my, in other words, I think I put it in my book, like the gifts we have received never make us better than anyone else because mm, yes. it's, it's a gift we have received. It's yes. not like a merit we have earned independently, separately. So, so yeah, I, I totally mm. agree with that, Brian. Mm. Brian, I, I'd like to introduce for our audience after this brief introduction, the, the topic of our lecture, although we are of our episode already, we are already diving deep into that, but for those of those, for those who do not know, uh, we chose today with Brian, he suggested the title, Why, What Keeps Religious Traditions Alive? And as you can see, we are already riding the wave. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, we, we chose this title, at least in my opinion, I agree with that, because for me, the main theme of Brian's book that I read, Do I Stay Christian?, uh, as well as Brian's ongoing sharing uh, in trying to keep Christianity as a vibrant and dynamic tradition, uh, and not only Christianity, of course, since every mystical tradition should honor mm. its own essence in a vibrant and dynamic mm. way. So for me, the title really fit into that. And I'd like to read one second, Brian, a few sentence, one sentence from my book that I generally yeah. share with one corresponding 
yes. radical in the second part in this case we are addressing today radical contemporaneity if i'm pronouncing that relatively correct <laughs> so it's page 121 and basically says this of course this is speaking into my godia vaishnav community but as we will see that applies universally so it says godia vaishnavism needs to include in its conversations contemporary themes that remain unaddressed in the classical literature such as ecological and racial awareness abortion social injustice substance addiction postmodern psychic scars economic inequality dysfunctional families gender issues and even the possibility of nuclear catastrophe among other press pressing predicaments we call this radical contemporaneity so i think even you you brian talked about that in do i stay christian so Basically, this is what gave us the inspiration for the title for today, What Keeps Religious tradi religious Traditions Alive. So I don't know if in connection to, to that particular paragraph, you have some reflections, Brian, to, to continue. Yes. Well, first of all, I, I love this section of, of your book and I identified it um, so much. And in fact, one of the sentences that really struck me was just uh, uh, right before the passage you just read, if you wouldn't mind me reading yeah, this sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you say, um, even if we have never been abused, let's nonetheless remain uh, empathic and compassionate with those who have. Let's hmm. profoundly identify with the despised ones and thus enter the disfigured state where much of humanity now lies. Let's mm. never seek to be undespised. Mm. That's radical egalitarianism at its best. And I was deeply, mm. deeply moved by those words that then lead right into what you've just said, because I, I'm thinking that one of the, if, if I were to look back in history uh, and see how impersonalism created a uh, unintended uh, harm, impersonalism would make it easy to say, oh yeah, those people, uh, they're just getting the karma they deserved or those people that they were just born to this kind. Their life force is working something out. We, ha we don't have any responsibility to have empathy toward them or toward consider considering the injustice of their fate. Um, and of course, that was done in certain ways in the East. Oh, it was done in such horrible, ugly ways in the Christian West. Uh, uh, I mean, ways that make make me sick and that make us, mm. uh, you know, just think how how can we go on without acknowledging the the harm to millions of persons, uh, uh, hundreds of millions, and and so that sense that I could see where personalism would say the life and suffering of every, uh, of every person has to touch us and we have to identify with it. And if people are despised, we would want to identify that with them as being despised. All of this, you know, I just think is so beautifully said for me and the Christian faith. I think this is the meaning of one of our doctrines called incarnation. This idea that, that God identifies with the the weakest person and and the most despised person and we would want to see the glory of god in the poorest and most vulnerable and forgotten person uh and 
and this to me is one of the struggles in this issue of contemporaneity, mm. uh, which is not easy for me to say either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because so many of the issues of our world today involve yeah. this kind of wow. empathy for this, to say that the suffering of no creature, the suffering of any creature has to be taken uh, seriously and taken to heart. Mm -hmm. hmm. And it's not only Christianity, Brian, it's, I can yeah. tell you when, when you were given this example of that's their karma that they deserve. I cannot tell you how many times I heard that exact sentence by members of my own tradition. Yes, yes. Because we, our own doctrines, which maybe, of course, may differ in some aspects in connection to, to the general presentation of Christianity in terms of reincarnation and karma and so on. But again, any doctrine, any tradition can be used for redemption or can be used for yeah. taking everything and everyone down with along with it. <laughs> yes. So, so. Karma can be taken in a redemptive way as a very loving educational law that is trying to, but even if someone is going through something that is their karma, technically speaking, in our tradition, it doesn't mean that I cannot be completely empathic and merciful to that person. Because if I technically can say, well, what she's going through, she deserves that because she did that. Even if that's technically true, that doesn't do away with the law of mercy, which is above, above justice or above karma. And that's the actual, for me, ultimate purpose of karma is not so much to label everyone <laughs> yes. in, in their karmic boxes, but breaking the karmic boxes and, 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 and overflowing that with mercy and compassion. Uh, and yeah, of course, we are not that very we are not very good at at it in, in general <laughs> in every tradition, <laughs> because it's so much easier, quote unquote, to oh. label box people and condemn yeah. them. Basically, no, there's not yes. so much for me too much distance between ju judging and labeling and putting in box than condemning someone. Sometimes for eternity, we are not very generous with one another. So, oh my, yeah, yes. and I, I really appreciate what you mentioned how this contemporary challenges that we may need to confront to remain re relevant actually demand from us this deep empathy with the despised ones yeah. and and entering to those shoes and and asking ourselves how how willing i am to to enter that space myself because of course as, as you know it's not easy but as i mm. like to put in my book it's not impossible either it's difficult, which for me is difficult is the middle point between easy and impossible. <laughs> so, yes, yes. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, our our shared dear friend, uh, Father Richard Rohr, the Franciscan Catholic uh, uh, writer and uh, uh, thinker who started the Center for Action and Contemplation that I'm involved with, um, you know, Richard, uh, when he started the center, he called it this, the Center for Action and Contemplation. And he says the most important word in the name is the word and, because we can easily throw out contemplation and just be focused on action, or we can throw out uh, action and just be focused on contemplation. And this holding together of 
action that's oriented toward our real world and what's going on in our real world right now, you know, right now, this mm -hmm. becomes an interesting challenge. And Swami, I have to say, it's one of the reasons I was so glad to, when you reached out to me and I had a chance to read your book and learn more about you and your story and your work, because I think this is one of the things that I see going on in each uh, religious tradition. Uh, well, I shouldn't say each, but many, and I hope it's a growing number. It's this, it's this reintegration of these, of these two things that are of the, and that's lost where mm. uh, holding that dynamic tension. Uh, could I just share a couple of quick stories about this? Please. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I, I remember, uh, the first, I, I have a relative who, uh, is and was deeply devoted to uh, the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm -hmm. And when this uh, relative had read some of my books, he said, you know, you are, uh, you would be interested in learning more about Thich Nhat Hanh's story. Mm -hmm. And uh, a quick, just a quick example of his story. He, he uh, was Vietnamese, passed away recently, um, but he was Vietnamese and grew up as his nation, Vietnam, was moving into civil war. And in the 1960s, he was disturbed by the fact that his Buddhism was not helping his people behave better uh, in this time of social disintegration. And so he began using this term, engaged Buddhism, Mm. And he said, there, there is a word in our ancient Sanskrit, uh, you know, traditions mm -hmm. that he felt had been misinterpreted. And that one misinterpretation was helping justify a mm. disengaged Buddhism, a Buddhism mm. that was, that didn't care about the suffering of people. Mm. And so he, he had to go into this very, almost esoteric debate in in the scholarly world about the mistranslation mm. of a word hmm. to try to get to the fact that his nation was falling apart and the spirituality mm. of his nation was not as a, as big a, an asset as it should be. Uh, hmm. So I'll jump to another example, and we can yeah. give many others if we want. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally uh, curious about which that Sanskrit term may be, but I will do my research and... And see if we, if we are equally misinterpreting it as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I won't remember the Sanskrit word. No, no problem. I'll, I'll look um, for that. No problem. The story is very clear. I, I think I can remember the concept. Let's see. Um, uh, well, it, it goes to the deep, uh, uh, you know, one of the four noble truths of Buddhism mm -hmm. um, uh, that, uh, that suffering is the result of desire. Mm -hmm. And, and what, uh, he wanted to say is, look, if desire can mean a lot of different things, <laughs> your, mm -hmm. your desire for enlightenment is a kind of desire that we might consider a holy desire. And, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and, uh, and it's related to the idea of detachment and, mm -hmm. and, and in a certain sense, what yeah. I think he was getting at was this idea that if we are detached from the suffering of our fellow creatures and from mm. what's going on in our world, mm. because we want to be spiritual and only focused on our own enlightenment, mm. uh, 
this can lead us to an irresponsible form of spirituality. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. What, what comes to mind, because I remember in the Sanskrit of the Four Noble Truths will be dukkha, which is the truth of suffering. Yeah. And then eventually one of there is the cessation of suffering, which is nirodha in Sanskrit, which yeah can be taken as detachment. And in relation to what you mentioned, Brian, what comes to mind, and I think I mentioned that last podcast that I have with uh, Father Adam Buko. You may yes. know about him. Yes. He recently visited the CAC as well. So we were last week with him. Uh, we were talking about detachment and uh, for ideally conceived, and again, ideally, not that everyone in our tradition conceives as such, but for us, detachment is not so much indifference because sometimes it's taken as such, but detachment is just taking this some di enough distance from something, whatever we are being detached from, so we can properly and see that for what it is because sometimes yes. we are yes. so close yes. like yes. like if my hand is here it's so close that i cannot see it <laughs> so yes. i need some detachment as yes. much as my as much as my arm can take it yes. and i can see my arm and now i can see my hand for what it is yes that's detachment so it's, it, there is an engagement with my hand there is not indifference there is actually yes. i can better grasp it so that's for us the inner spirit of detachment, which is, has yes. nothing to do with indifference, evasiveness, bypassing of any type. But anyhow, just my commentary on your story. Beautiful, and and but we can easily see how self-interest, complacency, political ideology could tempt us to misinterpret uh, that word in a careless yeah. way. I'll give you one other quick example, just involving a friend of mine. Mm. are some friends of mine who are rabbis and um and as rabbis they're they're rabbis in the united states uh and they're obviously very concerned about the well-being of the jewish people around the world and uh, about the state of israel but when they watch what the state of israel is doing to the palestinian people Hmm. Uh, in the name of a precious word for the Jewish people, which is the idea of being chosen. Hmm. Um, uh, in the sense, it, it, they, they believe God chose our ancestor Abraham and we are chosen in Abraham. And, and they say, in the name of this precious idea core to our identity, we're denying the humanity of the Palestinian people and we're legitimizing mm. uh, the continued oppression of them. Mm. And I think of a friend of mine uh, who, when she spoke out about this and wrote about this, um, she received death threats to her and her children from people of her own faith because they felt she was betraying uh, the, the government of or cr criticizing the government of Israel when what she was um, saying is in the name of fidelity to our own ethic, we have to, we, we can't treat other human beings in this heartless way. And, um, uh, and familiar. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think about it. And, uh, uh, there was a Christian theologian who saw that the, that Christians took the worst possible interpretation of this idea of chosenness and applied mm. it to themselves in a way that hurt Jewish people. And he made this beautiful redemption of this term. He said to be chosen is not to be chosen as an elite to the exclusion of everyone else. Mm. He said to be chosen is to be chosen 
in service to the well-being of everyone else. Responsibility. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So all that's to say that Hmm. these struggles are happen across religious traditions. And this is why for me to see the, the journey that you've been on in trying to bring these issues to light in your tradition is inspiring mm. to me and, and encouraging mm. to me. Mm. Yeah, Brian, as you mentioned, I I mean, I remember when I visited Father Richard Rohr in, in New Mexico in February, and I told that to, to, to many. They, I was sharing some of my own issues in dealing with my community and trying to, again, me remain re- relevant and relatable to them and me having my own community and tradition relevant and relatable to me. <laughs> Uh, and he will tell me like every every particular aspect I will show. He will say, "Oh, I have a version of that one in my tradition. We have a version of that one." <laughs> yes. So we were kind of like checking the boxes, and then he was his turn to share his own lamentation, so to say. And I will say, "We have that one also. We have that." So my point is, this is a very it's a side gaze. No, it's not just limited to yeah my tradition, your tradition, but it's so palpable and. And for me, it's some type of tipping point where there is some need to to certain naming and framing and addressing certain dynamics. And as you mentioned, the dangers of, like Richard himself has said, you you give a Bible or or a Bhagavad Gita in our tradition, a a religious book to someone who has no training in what to do with with absolutes, not with (laughs) notions of supremacy and ultimacy. You, You can be creating a serial killer probably you you never know <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, fanatical or de- oh. public danger uh, so you, we need to be uh, grounded because if not as you may have said and heard so many times i mean we can justify anything with scriptures yes. no yes. <laughs> basically yes. and, and as i try to mention in my book of course if when there is love, uh, this idea came out, when there is love everything is justified real love justifies yeah. everything but when there is no love, everything becomes an excuse. No? Yes. <laughs> so, yes. of course, the idea is to, first of all, fill our hearts with love, and then then we will be able to justify everything in the proper way, explain and address everything, understand everything in the proper way. But without love, our attempts to justify is just an excuse to keep mm. avoiding reality, actually. And, you know, to me, I, I again, entering as an outsider and being uh, educated through uh, your book, it, it just feels like this is probably the, I, I can imagine this is the heart of what personalism is supposed to be about, that love uh-huh. is what, love becomes the ultimate ethic. Um, yeah. And uh, and of course, uh, for me as a Christian, I think this is what Jesus was really about. This is what St. Paul was really about. Uh, but it's so ironic how, a religious tradition, it, it's such a predictable pattern. They start with a founder and, and an original insight and gift that's so beautiful. And then we can end up trying to defend the words and argue about concepts. And soon we've betrayed, um, we've betrayed the mm. example. Um, could I just say, uh, could I refer to one uh, sentence from, uh, from your book on page 122? Um, you talked about the importance of dialogue and you said with proper dialogue in place, proper conclusions may arrive in time, even when they may not fully agree with each other in everything. And, and uh, when I read that sentence, 
it made me think of a a Christian theologian uh, who died about 20 some years ago, but who had a very big effect on me. His name was uh, William McClendon. Mm -hmm. And he uh, he was a uh, really interesting theologian. He He's known as one of the founders of something called narrative theology. Mm -hmm. And uh, narrative theology takes st storytelling and especially life story very, very seriously. And everyone was surprised as the founder of narrative theology, or one of the founders, when mm -hmm. he wrote a book that was a systematic theology, which is what narrative theology was trying to correct. And, and there's all kinds of interesting uh, theological dimensions of this. But he wrote a three, three volumes of this, uh, this theology. And the three volumes were mm -hmm. Doctrine, Witness, and Ethics. Mm -hmm. um, now, doctrine obviously means teaching, dogma, so on. Um, uh, ethics means how we treat each other. And witness was his word for our action in the world. But here's what's really interesting. The order that he wrote these, uh, uh, first he wrote ethics, then he wrote doctrine, then he wrote witness. And here's what he said. Hmm. He said he put ethics first. Because if we don't know how to treat one another, we can never stay in dialogue long enough to come to good doctrine. And then if we don't have good ethics and good doctrine, anything we do in the world could cause more harm than good. And I felt he was saying very much what you're saying about this deep importance of dialogue. If we don't know how to treat one another in dialogue, we'll be stuck to the narrow, limited thinking of, one person who imposes his will on others or one party that imposed their will on others. At any rate, this seemed to me to be a, yeah. a, a deep part of what you have been struggling with and others in your community as well. Yeah. So sorry to not have known that reference when I was writing my book, I would have added that. <laughs> There's always so much more, isn't there? Yeah. 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 I always yeah. have that temptation to the re-edition of any, ever, all of my books <laughs> yes. every week, every week or so. so. Me too. Yeah. I yeah. can imagine. But yeah, I totally agree, Brian, with, with that idea of, of how, I mean, it, it, as basic as that may sound, let's learn how to treat one another. Let's learn how to communicate, how to, uh, have a dialogue instead of a simultaneous monologue that sometimes we, <laughs> we may confuse with dialogue. No, we are having a dialogue. No, no, the two of you are having simultaneous monologue, but nobody's listening to one oh. another. <laughs> and, and, and we were here in Switzerland. We have been given some lectures. And yesterday we were talking about a series of verses from one important book in our tradition where God himself is basically saying, if you worship me in the altar, but then you go out of the altar and relate to other people who, in, in whose heart I am and mistreat them. Your worship is imitation and performance because actually worship me in the altar has to give you the fruit of universalizing the altar and realizing the altar is everywhere. I may have to start in one corner in my room, my altar, but then if I properly do that, the, the, the altar will expand and I will realize God is present not only in my altar but in every altar not only in every altar but in every corner in every heart in every oh. atom even so so if oh, so beautiful how, 
Yeah, I mean, that's how it's beautiful, but of course, in practice, it's humiliating yes, and yes. embarrassing how much we <laughs> miserably fail. Yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, there was a series, there are very strong verses in that section, and, and he, God, speaks very strongly, but not like a chastiser God, but to make the point clear that please don't miss this one. This lesson is so crucial. Like, the more you love me, the more you have to love everything else because everything is interrelated. And I know you you will be teaching the same in Christianity. Everything is inter, even quantum physics and modern yes. science is proving yes. that. We have the term in Sanskrit, Sambanda, which means everything is tied together. Yeah. So the more I love God, the more I have to love everything else because everything is in connect. The nature for us, we will say in our tradition that the nature of love is that if I love someone, I will love everything in connection to that someone. Yes, yes. And if I love God, I will have to love everything else because it yes. happens that everything else is in connection with him. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so there's no, no, there's no escape. It's beautifully yes. uh, capturing. We cannot escape oh. from such an idea. But again, we fail so miserably sometimes on, on that simple truth, but of course, so sometimes so challenging, no? Learning you know, I, yeah, I, I wonder if I could offer an observation just on what I'm feeling and I sense in you as well as we're having this conversation, because yes, please, please. You, you and I both know that these failures in exactly this area that we're talking about, mm. these failures have resulted in incredible suffering and terrible harm and horrible, unacceptable, infuriating hypocrisy. And yet I noticed that as you and I are talking, we feel to, not to the exclusion of that sadness, we also feel joy. Hmm. And, and I think this is something I'm just observing that I think it, it's a relief for people to acknowledge what we're trying to acknowledge. Because I think on some level, people realize this, that there's something really wrong with the way so many of our religious communities are functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the relief yeah. and the joy of seeing, like when I heard you tell that, that story from, from your tradition about uh, worshiping God at the altar and then betraying mm -hmm. it in the way we treat people, I just think, yes, that's so true. And joy comes, I think, when we acknowledge that, that, our reality so, so yeah yeah even if it may be painful to acknowledge yes. some of those yes. things still there is a deeper sense of joy and relief and and to be honest some some of probably the main word that people have shared with me regarding my book those who have read it is like also oh, i mean this book gives me so much relief <laughs> so i connecting that with what you are yeah. mentioning here yes. no the relief that comes Relief and hope were the two words, but first came relief. <laughs> and the relief that comes of acknowledging what needs to be acknowledged. And probably after the acknowledgement, we will grip together because of the consequences of all the things that we are acknowledging, the consequences of that throughout history. Uh, and, and as we were talking with a friend of mine in some podcast past, uh, we will say it, probably the duty of our generation is just to grieve for, for what has been done in the past in the name of our tradition. To, uh, to acknowledge that, to grieve, and to stay with that grieving in a, of course, healing, transformative way. And, yeah. of course, that, that gives its own joy, no? Yes, uh, al exactly. Although it may not sound too joyful, but there is a, a meaning, a, a purpose, a purpose and a meaning, deep purpose and meaning there. So that gives its own 
taste, so to say, its own joy. So oh, we, we, we were staying with that meditation. And I, I like that point. Like, well, probably our the duty of our generation is to acknowledge and grieve certain things that were done. So that that generation of grieving will warranty that from now on <laughs> we'll move to a, an actual change of pattern, so to say. Oh, my. And yes, 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 yes. Uh, and you know, so many, so often we want to fix the grieving so quickly, but I think mm -hmm. what you said about staying with it until mm. it does its full work in us to, to bring about the change that, that might not feel like that's fixing. Well, it is something better than fixing its healing because we're being changed as we live with the grief and, and we shouldn't be surprised if the grief doesn't, if the grief doesn't exclude joy, but it brings the first, the relief, as you say, and then it flows into joy. Um, could I, I wanted to mention another, going back to the sentence that you read earlier from the beginning of that section, radical contemporaneity. Sure. I'm um, embarrassed you are reading so much from my book. I had some hope you will read from your own book, Brian. <laughs> I have well, to have yours here. So I do some good competition to, to the quotes you're sharing and sharing oh yours. My. Well, I noticed that when you said, um, you know, the classical literature of our traditions were unaware of ecology in the way that we are today. They uh -huh. were obviously they couldn't write about nuclear war. They could write about war, but something as devastating as, as nuclear war, they couldn't even imagine mm -hmm. um, when so many of our religions grew in monocultural areas. They, they didn't, they weren't so sensitive to issues of racial awareness. And when we think about the content and, and uh, well, and, and then when you put climate change on the table, which, you know, is when you use the word relief a minute ago, I think for so many devout people, they go to church or, or, or they go to prayers or they go to synagogue or, uh, or, uh, whatever form their religious community takes when they gather and it feels like they're in one world there. And then they go to their real world where economic problems, ecological problems, racial problems, uh, problems of gender inequality and so on are so devastating. And they just feel they have to live in two different worlds. And mm. when someone in their religious community starts talking about the realities outside, they feel relief. Um, and if, if we don't face those things without intending to, we become complicit in the problems getting worse. And so uh, I just wanted to highlight that this is a dimension of contemporaneity that, mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of people don't understand. This is what keeps a tradition, a living tradition. When people honor their founders and honor their tradition, not by just repeating the old words again and again, but by bringing everything from the past to the present moment and bringing resources from their tradition to engage with the problems of the present moment. Uh, oh my goodness. This is, this is one of the, it, without that, a tradition cuts itself off and becomes a dying or dead tradition, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally agree with, yeah, the dangers of ending up being an irrelevant, lifeless uh, ideology, completely, uh, yeah, unrelatable, 
and, uh, and as you mentioned, Brian, how important it's just, just quote unquote, to talk about the things, no? because sometimes people may think, well, but we have to do more about it. But sometimes also we need to talk about yeah. it in, as you mentioned, in, in quite a detail. So that helps people to figure out actually what needs to be done. Because if we, <laughs> if we just talk a little bit and quickly are wondering, well, we have to take action and do so many things. If the conception of what to do is not so refined, maybe the, the do, again, if there's not so much contemplation, but yeah. too much action, <laughs> yeah. if the end is not in between, whatever we will try to do will be just fostering the problem in one way or another. So, yes. so I, 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 and I agree with your idea of, confront, of confronting these issues. The word confrontation needs to be normalized. It's not a bad word. I remember I read in some of the, newsletter published by the CAC on a daily basis, the, the different meditation sent. There was one article they talked about confrontation as a form of intimacy. Mm -hmm. So confrontation is not I'm attacking you, but I'm trying to get closer to you by oh, confronting, yes. putting in front of us what we have been pulling under the rock, rock for centuries probably. So I'm showing my love to you by bringing to light what needs to be brought to light uh, so we can together embrace it and, and as you mentioned honor our the legacy of our tradition for for what it is because of course the title of our meeting may sound redundant in the sense a religious tradition by nature in its essence spiritual essence is alive in itself but but how much alive we are how which how much aliveness we are embracing that aliveness that is at the very yes. depth and essence of our tradition and in our tradition we have this uh, symbols, if you will, this idea, this myth, I, I don't think that's have been proved scientifically, but it is saying in our scriptures, when a parrot bites a fruit, it makes the fruit sweeter. <laughs> so whether it's literally true or not, I don't know, I may never know, but the point is you have the parrot which just repeats, do copy-paste, <laughs> and sometimes we are that type of parrot in our tradition. <laughs> or you can be the other type of parrot which whatever touches increases its sweetness, like develops the content, makes it more relevant, oh. more dynamic. So basically for us, that's our version of free will. Choose, choose which type of parrot you want to be. So to oh. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's just beautiful. Uh, when you were speaking about, you know, the importance of talking about things uh, sufficiently, mm. uh, you know, as a white Christian American, um, the first part of my life was spent in conversation with other white Christian Americans. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized, oh my goodness, I better wake up and hear, first of all, what women are saying. Second, what uh, not just white people, but people of color are saying. Mm. And one of the great sages of American history uh, is was is a black uh, uh, scholar and uh, genius and courageous social activist of the 20th century named James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And uh, James Baldwin said, not everything that is named can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is named. Uh, actually, it's faced was the word. And if by faced, he, he meant like confronted. Mm -hmm. uh, not everything that is uh, 
faced or confronted can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced or, or confronted. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing your, your testimony. And I was thinking when you were mentioning this idea, okay, you had, you engaged in conversation for the first, whatever, 40 years or something, <laughs> but only with white male, whatever Christians <laughs> or something. Yeah. And maybe in time you'll discover oh, that's in itself a form of monolo monologue yet. Yes, no? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> because there's other people in the room, but it's just in one, still in one particular color, gender, species, whatever, box. Yeah. So it's in itself a form of monologue. So for me, it's interesting, this idea. There are so many levels of monologue that yes. we need to transcend to finally arrive at real dialogue <laughs> yes 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 so true so true and you know in in that same passage when you um talked about uh psychic scars it also made me think about part of contemporaneity mm. that is very challenging for a lot of religious people is to bring their faith and their tradition and their doctrine and their practices and rituals and uh organizational structures into conversation with the disciplines of psychology and sociology. Um, yeah. uh, and this has been profoundly had a, a profound influence in my own life, but, uh, uh, and, and I think many people are afraid of this, but it would be interesting you know, conversations like this, uh, that we're having, it, if I can use this word, this word could be abused, but fundamentalism, if I could talk about fundamentalism as a phenomenon across religions, uh, that yeah. is part of this existence of, or this phenomenon of being cut off from the contemporary world, cut off from voices outside the usually male and privileged voices that, uh, that are, are we've listened to. Um, my goodness, this, for all of our religions to have a conversation within themselves and then across religions about fundamentalism as a psychological and sociological reality, I think this could be very liberating for us. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I will say that's another variety of what I was saying of we still keep engaging in monologue unless yeah. we open to other uh, voices, so I, I I will totally agree, and I mentioned that in my book that if we do not engage in dialogue, not only with our own self, with our own traditions, with other spiritual traditions, but even with secular disciplines, uh, as some of the ones you mentioned, sociology, history, psychology, uh, we we still in, still remain in some form of monologue. We only yes. talk with theists or personalists or mystics, but not with psychologists, not with sociologists, that God is not necessarily there so we cannot have a conversation. And still, is, that's a monologue. Still, we are not receiving a challenging feedback to to question where, where we actually are. And, and I personally, and I put that in my book, and I know that some people felt uncomfortable with that because I remember I gave a series of lectures before publishing this book on the contents of the book. And one in one I mentioned, the title was something like the collective unconscious of, of my tradition. Mm. And some people felt like uncomfortable because there I was kind of suggesting 
we need to do family therapy as a community. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. So and good. They were like, what do you mean? You know, do you mean that our tradition in its root is rotten or something? They say, no, the essence is divine, transcendental, but in the current state of affairs and how we are dealing with yeah. it and so on, probably we need a good amount of family therapy, so to say, confronting our subconscious in, in Jungian terms. Some shadow work is waiting for us as a collective. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I, 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 I'm going to borrow that um, from you uh, going forward. That our tradition needs family therapy uh, to address <laughs> our collective unconscious. I, another phrase that you used in, in this chapter, in fact, uh, was this phrase "conventional dogmatism," and I think mm. that term is a good term to name this fundamentalistic. Uh, tendency that happens to everybody. Yeah, um, it, it's it's it, it's uh, a perpetual uh, temptation uh, and danger. Yeah, yeah. That that was that came like naturally, like trying to 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 create, so to say, a character that may be the antithesis, the nemesis of radical personalism, and to give that yes. a form and a voice. But as you mentioned, that's not so far away. And 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 why saying that we are not pointing to some in one sense, enemy outside of us. But yes. they say charity begins at home. But in one sense, <laughs> charity should be, in this case, taking responsibility for how much yes. I am indulging in that. And in this connection, Brian, what, what comes to mind that I really loved from your book, uh, Do I Stay Christian? And I mentioned that in my own book, is this list, and you have unfolded that so beautifully in your podcast, is this list of different biases Mm. that we have. And, and for me, that's very much in line with what we are talking. We need to do family therapy as a community yes. and confront by through the hand of psychology and these disciplines, all these filters through which we choose to approach reality, God, everything, yeah. and, and end up projecting so much. So I don't know if you, I mean, I'm not asking here you to name the whole list and unpack that. That will take a few seasons of podcast that you are already doing. So those who, for of you who would like to go, please try to look for learning how to see, and you will see it very beautifully unpacking. But at least give us some trailer sure. of that. So sure, to say. <laughs> sure. So um, uh, when you use that metaphor before of uh, if my hand is right mm -hmm. in front of my eye, I can't see it. I have to get some distance. Uh, a, a term in philosophy and in uh, the humanities for that is critical distance. I need to get enough distance from something that mm. I can look at it with amount of detachment. As you said before, it's not part of me. Well, when we use our thinking to try to look at our thinking and at ways that our thinking might uh, get us in trouble, uh, that helps us understand biases. And um, so maybe I could just mention, I'll mention three. Uh, if people are interested on my website, I have a little ebook with, uh, I think I have, I'm up to 16, but I might add another one. Uh, whenever I, I feel like I've, someone helps me see a, a new bias, I try to add it to that document. Mm. But, um, but uh, one of the most common is called confirmation bias and confirmation yeah. bias is probably the fundamental bias. It, all of us are busy. All of us are working hard and our brains want to conserve energy. So if we have a way of thinking and a new idea comes and this idea will disrupt our current assumptions, our brain so quickly, even before we're aware of it, 
puts up an emotional response. Don't accept that idea. That idea is dangerous. Well, it is dangerous to my status quo and my comfort, but it might be right, or it might at least have a grain of truth. So confirmation mm. bias makes us screen out anything that doesn't confirm what we already think. My goodness, mm. if people just became more aware of that bias, it would help us all uh, a lot. Um, yeah. uh, another form of confirmation bias is, I call it cash bias. And uh, mm, if yeah. something gets in the way of our making money, <laughs> we... we We the world has to stop. <laughs> <laughs> This is an unthinkable thought, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe one other that is very relevant to your life story and mine, it, we could call community bias. If an idea or an insight comes that will get me in trouble with my community, mm. my temptation is to either never say it or not even think it. Sometimes maybe I'll hold the idea, but I'm afraid to say it because it will get me in trouble because we all cherish belonging to our community. So those are just three common biases that that uh, even though they're all understandable, um, they can result in great suffering for ourselves or for others. And they can keep us from facing the truth and reality that we yeah. would be so much better off if we could face. Yeah. I like how you mentioned one part, which I think it defines all these biases and probably the rest of them is this idea of it's dangerous, but it might be truth. No? <laughs> so, so somehow that's a combination of facts that I yeah. may experience it as dangerous. And, and yeah, it may, it may be dangerous to whom? Probably yes. to our false self, which still carries fears, which still carries separate agenda, which still yeah. carries other list of biases. <laughs> But if it's truth, again, I think that's the moment where we are being tested. Like, okay, if it's true, how yeah. willing you are to embrace what's true, despite if it feels dangerous, if it's challenging, if it's risky, it feels whatever you want to put in the line, it feels like this. But yeah. if it's true, <laughs> how much yeah. that is the the defining line of the whole script? Yes. It's true. Yes. So that's first and the rest will accommodate if it's true. <laughs> yes. And yeah, I know that it's, it's not so easy. It's, it's easy to talk about that, but it's it's not so easy. In our, in our tradition, there is a very beautiful verse. I will spare you of the Sanskrit one talk to you with that, but <laughs> a, a very saintly lady in our tradition called Kunti Devi, and she's praying to Krishna, to God, and she's asking, please send me more troubles. Uh, and of course, if you study her life, she had such an amount of troubles that the last thing you will think of is she will mm. ask for more. Mm. <laughs> so it may sound like she has some masochistic uh, yeah. dysfunction or whatever, but actually the essence of that is send me, not troubles in which sense, send me situations in which I'm put to test. Yeah. No? So I can see where I actually stand because unless yeah. challenges knock my door, I don't know who I am. Yes. You know, as long as everything is nice, so to say, in, in its place, in order, I may have an idea of me, but when I'm put to test, when I'm invited to chaos outside of order, outside oh. of the comfort zone, when I'm put into yeah. liminal space, there I can have a more realistic picture of, of who I actually am and who I want to be in yes. that situation. Oh. And, I, and I think we all, our traditions, in order to keep themselves alive need to, how to say, to inhabit this liminality more often and to be willing to coexist with what seems feels dangerous and, 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 and deconstruct the danger and realize 
there is no risk. No? There, 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 ultimately, there is no risk. One of my teachers, sorry to, to say that, but mm -hmm. to add more, but he will say, in the beginning of our practice, we will think, when we hear some of the things, <laughs> we'll think too much danger and very little gain. Mm -hmm. So we will calculate too dangerous, little <laughs> gain. And he will say, as we advance, we will feel the more the risk, the more gain. Uh, and the more we advance, he will say, actually, no risk, all gain. Oh, oh <laughs> but, but so will, much wisdom there. We'll perceive it in, in, in those sequences, so to say. No? Oh, my goodness. I think that's so, so rich. So rich. Um, the lady you mentioned, what was her name? Kunti. It's K-U-N-T-I. And when did she live? Oh, that was like according to our tradition a few thousands of years ago. So it's, not that, it's not that yeah, contemporary. Yeah. So it's I mean, quite but, far. But to think that that idea feels totally contemporary. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. If, I wonder if I could share with you, because this touches on a very personal dimension of your story and my story, where we've both experienced some suffering for the path that we have uh, taken. Um, Years ago, one of my mentors uh, gave me a um, a little uh, piece of paper with a, a prayer printed on it. And I should say this mentor was very good to me, but he didn't want to ever mention that we were friends. Uh, we were friends in private. He didn't want to go too public with it because he thought the people who didn't like me would stop listening to him. And he mm. had important things to say. So mm. we had this respectful relationship of a private deep mm -hmm. friendship. And he gave this to me and he said, I think you're going to need this. <laughs> uh, and it was this prayer by a Serbian Orthodox Bishop in the 20th century, whose name was, uh, oh, well, it's, it's on my website. I've, I've, I okay. won't recall his name. Mm -hmm. Um, if people are interested, this prayer is called A Prayer for Enemies, and it's uh, it's uh, on my website. But he was a Serbian Orthodox bishop who, when the Nazis came into Serbia, in, uh, a day or two later, arrested him and mm. put him in prison. In fact, he was sent to Dachau, one of the worst of the death camps. Mm. And while he was there, he here he's this deeply spiritual man, and he could very quickly, very soon die. But he was consumed with, uh, obsessed with wondering who betrayed me to the Nazis because he had never spoken publicly against the Nazis, but he'd only spoken privately. So he knew that whoever mm. turned him in was mm. one of his fellow priests who mm. he was supposed to be able to trust. And he was obsessed with who did this, who turned me, who betrayed mm. me. And then he, he got some of that critical distance and he observed his obsession. And then he realized, this is my opportunity. As you just said, something very dangerous to grow into. And so he began to write a prayer that expressed his struggle with an enemy. Mm -hmm. And, um, he he and then he, so what he does in the prayer is he starts talking about all the ways that his critics have helped him like for example he he said i try to keep my faults private and my virtues known to the world my enemies mm -hmm. forget about my virtues and 
publicize my faults. And in this way, they humble me far more than any of my friends have. Hmm. So he, he says, bless my enemies. Uh, it, sounding very much like the, the Kunti who you, you mentioned. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and at the end, he says, I don't know who has brought me more benefit, my friends or my enemies. So bless both my friends and my enemies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that prayer, it seems to me, is a, another example in, a, in our traditions of a deep insight, one that you and I have had to learn <laughs> the hard way, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that takes me always to quotes but the quote by Jesus like love your enemies basically yeah. that, that's the only way you can love your enemies but making your enemies no longer your enemies yes. <laughs> but, oh. but something else no I mean and, yes. and that brings to mind one quote since we're we are exchanging some quotes yes. and wisdom with you if you allow me I today it was today actually I discovered a very interesting quote from um um Oh, what's his name? Now it's escaping me. Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yes, yes. And, and maybe you know it, but I, here I have it because I separated that. I will share it these days because I felt that's beautiful, beautiful. In connection to what you are mentioning, in connection to our experience, he says, dear to us are those who love us. The swift moments we spend with them are a compensation for a great deal of misery. They enlarge our life. But dearer, Dear, more dear, are those who reject us as unworthy, for they add another life. They build a heaven before us whereof we had not dreamed, and thereby supplied to us new powers out of the recesses of the spirit and urge us to new and unattempted performances. Oh. <laughs> well, my guess is that this is an example of that in your life, this book, because... Um, uh, uh, that's certainly true for me. When I started saying some things that certain people in my tradition were uncomfortable with, mm. some of them became very vicious. Uh, I mean, uh, in private, they would say things that they would, to me directly, they would say things they would never say in public, or they would say things to people that, you know, in front of other people who would then come and tell me, hey, you should know what so-and-so is saying. And I remember thinking, by being this mean to me, do they think that will attract me to think like they are? I don't, no. you know, in a certain sense, they're pushing me away. Uh, and maybe that's giving me a little bit more critical distance that I needed to see some things I, I hadn't seen. And my work wouldn't have gone, I, I wouldn't have had the courage to go farther in my own work if they hadn't in a sense, they were the ones who pushed me. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And yeah, well, yeah. Emerson saying that. Yeah, I, rem I remember Father Richard mentioning. I don't recall the exact quote now, but he will sp speak about the privileged, the privileged viewpoint or perspective of the victim. So to say, yeah. of, of someone who really goes through real yeah. abuse or rejection or defamation, yeah. and how being in that unique place offers you a a unique perspective no? yes. so it's it's yes. awkward it's uncomfortable but it provides a such a landscape so to say from that from that viewpoint so so i really yeah. like that because yeah at the end of the day we, we we cannot but be grateful for for those who were instrumental because as you mentioned i i wouldn't say that the people who were vicious toward you or like i i mean as you were telling your part i was just like i can change your name for mine and it's mm -hmm. it's my story mm -hmm. but i wouldn't say that it was 
at least personally, I never felt it's against me, although mm. it has my name, mm. but it's what I represent to them in that particular situation. The danger uh, we may be represented by saying certain things, standing for certain things, and, and unconsciously they just feel the survival instinct. Yeah. We have to be protected. There's danger there. Let's attack, basically, yeah. no? Yes. But as they also say, sometimes with truth, first people mocks it, then they attack it, and they finally they accept it. So <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. You know, and this makes me think. Coming back to our theme of what helps a, a tradition stay alive, mm. it makes me value uh, every tradition when I realize that in every generation <clears throat> there are probably people who have to be willing to go through that suffering to keep the tradition alive and keep the tradition moving forward. Uh, and, and in many ways, this, all of us who are, everyone who's a parent knows this, that, you know, to, to raise a child involves sacrifice and suffering and pain and sorrow. And, and it's love that makes you joyfully be willing to go through that suffering. Um, and, the, the to keep a tradition to keep giving birth to the next generation of every tradition is mm -hmm. that similar kind of labor of love i think hmm. beautiful yeah such, such a commitment yeah i, I think it's mm -hmm. important that we realize yeah what, what what's it what's the price of belonging to a tradition and and to act to act to ask ourselves to what degree i'm actually willing to to make things better because yeah. And that's what I will say. That's what allows me to belong deeply to a tradition and not merely to fit in, so to say. No, I, I like Brene Brown. You may know her. Yes. And she makes that point in many of his book, her books. She says, like, there one thing is to belong, another thing is to fit in. They are not the same at yeah. all. <laughs> or as you mentioned in your own book that I really like so much when you mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, you correct me if I'm wrong, but something like, we can belong, stay in our tradition in Christianity, but for the wrong reasons, so to say. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. want to belong. We want to belong, which means stay for the right reasons. Yes, yes. Because yes. some people, some people may even leave their tradition for better reasons than those who choose to stay for <laughs> worse reasons, so to say. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a wonder that our traditions survive. <laughs> All, all that we, uh, all that their members put them through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One well, one friend of mine will say, "Our tradition keeps growing, not thanks to ourselves, but despite ourselves." <laughs> Something yes. like, like like saying that's God's mercy and love pushing through through all our how we yeah. fail miserably, so to say. Yes. <laughs> As we w close for a few in a few minutes, I hope you have a few minutes. You let me know if you have to yes. go, Brian, but. One last point that comes to my mind, if you would like to share a few yes, words, yes. is in connection to how to keep our traditions alive. Will comes to my mind is this idea of language, no? Like, like how do we express things? Because through language, yeah. we talk about this with Ilya Daly. Also, we had an, an episode with her, because language crafts our whole experience, no? Because yeah. how we talk is how we think, yeah. and how we think is affects everything else. And for me. <clears throat> At least in our tradition, we'll speak about realities. God is ever evolving. Let's sorry if I sound too poetic, but God's heart mm -hmm. is 
ever unfolding and ever evolving. Yeah. So to keep pace with God, to keep pace <laughs> with with transcendence, which, which is ever evolving, then we need to find an ever evolving language as well to keep pace yes, with an yes. ever evolving reality. Uh, and, and and for me, in that way, will be not to remain contemporary to the times we are living and the people we are sharing the message, but remaining contemporary to God's own heart unfolding and oh. keeping the pace of that. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and for that, I will think that not only we need to find sometimes new words <clears throat> for old terms or new depths of meaning to those terms, but sometimes even new words altogether for new emerging layers of reality yes. that come from that unfolding of God's heart. Uh, so, and, and, and according to our tradition, how God's own evolution and yeah. unfolding also somehow reflects in what's unfolding over here, so to say. Yes. So, how to keep pace with all of that? I don't know if you have any thoughts to share. Well, well, first, can I say uh, uh, that the the fact that it's part of your tradition to think of God as unfolding uh, is fascinating for me to hear. Uh, in, within my tradition, because uh, for many, mm. many centuries, that would have been absolutely unsayable or unthinkable because the very definition of God was unchanging. I, I'm not saying, Brian, that some people in my community doesn't think like that, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, um, but what's interesting is in the last 100 years or so, uh, mm. one of uh, Ilya Delio's great teachers, Tilar de Chardin, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then a, a, a very important figure in philosophy who has had a big influence in certain strains of Christian theology, Alfred North Whitehead White, and others, yeah. um, helped Christians begin to look at this idea in a fresh way. And then mm -hmm. they realized that there were some very early Christian thinkers, Gregory of Nyssa, for example, um, who said that God's perfection is infinite progression, which mm -hmm. is, is to me saying something very similar. So this has been something that our uh, in the Christian tradition is still under, you know, a lot of people would never accept this, but uh, a, a way that helped me take this seriously that relates, I think, to the idea of radical personalism mm -hmm. uh, for traditional Christians who think of God as the creator. Uh, well, uh, each of us came into the universe and we're having a life story and a life experience that is completely unique. So in a certain sense, for God to be in relationship to me means that God has new experiences through me that are entering God's existence. So, so this idea, it, it, it's just a, another example of how uh, this idea of personalism ch can challenge some conventional thinking to help us imagine, mm. uh, 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 open up our, our, our framework of, of understanding. And in a certain sense, this, I think, is also a necessary part of the spiritual life for me to realize you know, when I, when I look back and when I was 25, what I could, what I was capable of seeing, I, I did the very best I could with a 25 year old's experience. And mm. now for me at 67, uh, and, and then you think, but if I live to 80 or 90 or a hundred, it's our perspective is so limited. And, and for mm. us to maintain appropriate humility, 
even as especially as we handle the treasures of our tradition that humility again it it makes us see is one of the uh it's one of the ways that we keep the tradition alive and one of the ways we kill it is to say we've perfectly captured it and yeah. now we just have to defend <laughs> yeah 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 i remember one author i like a lot um richard tarnas uh, he wrote a few interesting books and he will say at one point that we need to culture a sense of epistemological modesty <laughs> yes, yes, that's beautiful. Yes. I like so much that that expression. No, we have to be epistemologically modest. Yeah. No, yeah. and not, don't think that our means of knowledge or whatever we know, whatever was handed down to us, is the all in all, and we know everything, and we have God in our pocket. That's a great temptation, temptation, of course. But if we play out the implications of an ever evolving God, it means. Again, it's always some new layer of unfolding, so we cannot never claim closure, so to yeah. say, but disclosure. And of course, we love closure, and we are so afraid of constant disclosure, <laughs> but that's the nature of ultimate reality. So there's nothing we can do but just try to align with how reality is instead of trying to force it to be some, somehow different and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you appreciate the points of an ever-evolving God. Again, I'm not saying there it's mainstream popular doctrine in my tradition. Uh, I personally feel very much tempted and inspired probably of making my next book, exploring that direction oh, from the great. perspective of our tradition. And sometimes we will say things like, for example, the very nature of love and God is love. So the very nature of love is it gives full satisfaction but also since love is ever, you can always love more, the nature of love is ever expanding, mm. love creates its own sense of what we call divine dissatisfaction. Mm. Because mm. you can always mm. love more. So in that sense, there's some dissatisfaction that takes you to another level mm. on the foundation of satisfaction. Yes, so God is, yes. God is in Sanskrit Atmaram, which means fully self-satisfied for him in himself. But on the top of that, his love and the nature of love is ever unfolding that creates a new necessity and he's divinely dis dissatisfied <laughs> which takes him to another level so we will talk in those terms and say okay god is there but god has potential as well as we have potential oh, so oh, i like oh. always this quote from albert einstein oh. you now he albert einstein will say whenever you analyze anything you have to analyze everything for what it is along with its potential oh yes what yes. you are and what and what's all that you can be and of course if you apply that to god what's all that he can be there's no limit to that and oh. and even to ourselves in connection oh. to him oh. Oh. so for me this idea of on ongoing potential just opens the portal to of course eternal unfolding that at least in our tradition is what how to say makes how to say gives heaven a, a very deep sense. If I'm going to an eternal place, if you want to conceive it like that, like that, but if the place the place is not ever unfolding and ongoing, yes, yes. I may be ter terrified about going there. I'm probably yes. bored to death after two yes. days and realizing. But now I have to stay here forever. What? <laughs> <laughs> Heaven starts to look like hell at that moment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> maybe I know we're drawing this to a close, but that thought I could just offer three brief reflections. The first is that this sense of being humbled and awestruck by 
by the expansiveness and depth of truth and beauty and glory. Uh, I, I experience that in, in nature. When I look up at the stars, I experience it when I look at the ocean, when I look at the depths of one human being's eyes, eyes, mm -hmm. um, I experience it. Secondly, when I look at the failures of every human tradition, mm. Uh, and realize our capacity to become closed off and thinking ourselves wise, we can become foolish. Um, and then I experience it in a, in a friendship and conversation like this, when I realize here, you're a, a friend and brother. I, I never met until recently. <laughs> and in this conversation, so much more is there to learn. So thank you so much for uh, inviting me into this conversation, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. My greatest blessing is to be counted as one of your friends. And, and for me also, it's a very beautiful gift from God to to discover these new friends. I, I'm really like, when I'm traveling around the world as I'm doing now, but even now online we are meeting and I'm always like in this spirit of, okay, let's see which new friends God wants me to bless me with. And I'm always all, all struck by yeah how many friends we can have <laughs> and <laughs> yes. still be substantial substantial yes friendship. yes no because sometimes we think too many friends you cannot it will be superficial it's like your five thousand friends in facebook or whatever but but to at least to know even if we may not have the physical time to get to live together for decades with each one but just to have a glimpse of how much we resonate in a substantial common foundation yeah. At least for me, that's enough for a lifetime. So, it does, <laughs> yes. and it gives so much hope and, and support. And, and I appreciate that, Brian, what you mentioned just in the, in the end regarding uh, the importance is also as for us as a tradition, as human beings in a tradition. To, I mean, we have this beautiful, bright potential, but also to humble mm. our potential by also remaining aware of how dark can be our potential also because potential can go in any direction. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so so yes. we have the potential to do like I was watching a, a lecture some time ago and one person was in talking to an audience and saying, if you have been in Nazi Germany, don't be so sure that you will have been against that. Mm. <laughs> Not like yes. implying probably yes. being in that environment, social yes. pressure, following them probably you have gone along with that. Mm. Uh, not to accuse, accuse not yes, accuse yes, anyone, yes. but just to yes, yes, try, yes. try to open yes. yourself to the yeah. possibility of in some direction, in certain environments with certain influence, we don't know with what we may end up doing. <laughs> so yeah. in that way, humbling our potential and from that place, addressing our brightest potential, but being sobered first by <laughs> and learning from all the dark things that we have done as a, as a species already. And from that foundation of acknowledgement, glimpsing at the bright potential that again, still is, is waiting for us. And, and as I like to say, in that sense, in that sense, we can pursue not merely Christianity or Vaishnavism as it is, or as it should be, but as all that it can always be in eternal unfolding or something like, like, like an eternal becoming. I like that quote, eternal becoming. We are in a state of eternal, eternal becoming, and for me, it's that that's a very important point to keep religious traditions alive. To acknowledge 
the nature of a reality as an eternal becoming and, yes. and play along with the rules of that game, so to say. <laughs> Beautifully said. Amen. Amen. What a pleasure. What a pleasure to be in this conversation with you, my friend. Thank you, Brian. We are just concluding almost, Brian, but I, if there is something else you may like to share, any conclusion, any thoughts, something that comes now that you may like to add? If there is anything, if not, don't force yourself to that, whatever has to come in this no. precise moment. No, just I, I just think that idea of eternal becoming is uh, is the perfect place to end. <laughs> okay, then let, let's put our discussion to rest. Not to cancel, but just we're using that, that language in our tradition. We'll yes. put the conversation to rest. Since the conversation is ongoing, it's eternal, eternal becoming. <laughs> yes. it, it will rest for a while and we will continue to, to ruminate in that. Yes. So thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. And thank you so much to all of you. I will share again the link for those who would like to contact Brian McLaren. Here is his website for those who are only listening. It's brianmclaren.net. And uh, so we are concluding today and next Saturday after this whole month of September that we have been inviting practitioners from different traditions and quote unquote different because the more we talk, the more we realize how much we have in common. I don't know mm -hmm. if you heard that, Brian, but I was when I was yeah. talking with Elia Delio a few weeks ago, I was sharing some of these points. And at one point she tells me, I think I'm a Vaishnav. <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, and it came to me naturally, like, well, when I hear you talking, I, I think I'm a Christian. So, so for me, <laughs> yes. when, even we were talking in terms of different traditions, I think it's so much more important to first acknowledge and embrace the uh -huh. so much common foundation we have there. Yes. So, and, so anyhow, this past month, we talked with people, uh, practitioners and representatives of Sufism and Christianity and so on. And the next month, starting next Saturday, I will be inviting back a few members of my Gaudiya Vaishnava community. In this case, we'll be sharing with a friend called Bhima Karma on next Saturday, October 7th and 10 a.m. EDT time. And somehow in relation to topics we have been talking today, the title of our episode will be Seeing, Grieving, and Healing Abuse. Mm -hmm. so, so he has lots of experience and things to share in that connection. So we'll be talking about that next saturday similar time same timing so one more time thank you to all of you thank you so much brian please stay one minute before i conclude the video and see you very soon all of you <laughs>